Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I'm joined by Shannon Molloy. Welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. So great to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. Um, because most of the people that listen to this podcast, it's an audio platform and aren't seeing the video, they won't see that your book, um, you made me this way sitting right beside me, but you are an author. You are many things as well. So do you mind just giving the listeners a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm I'm Shannon Malloy. I'm a journalist. Uh, I live in Sydney, but I grew up in regional Queensland and then worked in Brisbane for a long time. Covered a bit of everything over past sort of 17 odd years from breaking news and general lifestyle to politics and business. A uh, little stint in entertainment, writing about TV uh, and um, and sort of everything in between. Uh, I, I wrote my first book, 14, three years ago, kind of by accident. I wrote an opinion piece that went viral and then, you know, a friend of a friend introduced me to a publisher and that has kind of accidentally made me an author. Uh, and my second book, You've Made Me This Way, has just come out. Uh, so it's been a, a very sort of busy five or six weeks now getting out and about talking about that. And it's all about, um, I guess, the sort of lifelong impacts of trauma uh, on men who are sexually abused as boys. And that's how I've come to meet you and talk to you. Yes. And I think, I feel like journalists would be the best authors as well. Like you would be so good at just writing anyway. So it feels like a very natural transition for you. Getting to write this book specifically from what you have written previously, how did that come about? This, this is not a book I thought I would ever write. Um, it's, it's not even, you know, my story within the book is not even something I thought I would ever tell anybody, let alone strangers and the internet. Um, but it came about through my journalism work. I was working at news.com.au as a senior reporter. 
I kind of did, you know, the big issues of the day, but my my pet project was doing the stories that are really hard for people to get out there, really worthy stories, but stories that in this kind of 24-hour news cycle, clicks-driven media industry, most people ignore or say no to. Um, I've always found that there's that's where the human stories are and they're really important stories and and it's worth, you know, taking some time out of my day doing the big, big hitting stuff to do what journalists were meant to always be doing and that's tell important stories to, to the community. Uh, and that's how I met a fellow that you know well called Jared Grice. Um, he was an ambassador for the Polish Man campaign I got asked to do a story about Polish Man. They they um, said that Jared was willing to talk a little bit about his story. Uh, he came in uh, early evening on in the middle of winter. The sun was already gone. It was cold. We'd both finished big, long days at work, uh, and he came to meet me at work, and we sat in the, the cafe and had a cup of tea, and it was meant to be a 20-minute interview, and we spoke for almost two hours in the end, and that was, he was one of the the first people that I ever sort of indicated to that something had happened to me as a child, my first being my psychiatrist um, <laughs> and, and the second being my husband. So uh, totally unexpected. I tend to, like, first of all, it's just a terrible interview tactic to throw someone off by talking about yourself and breaking the flow of, of conversation. Um, but secondly, I'm, I'm, I was a pretty private person and particularly about this. I hated to talk about what happened to me when I was a boy. I was really scared about, you know, if I opened that box, what would come out. Um, but there was just something about him that was so sort of gentle and empathetic uh, that I just, I don't know, I said it. And he he stopped what he was saying and he he leant in and, his body language softened and he, you know, looked looked at me with those piercing eyes and, and he sort of said, like, oh, are you okay? You know, what's what's happened? If you ever need to talk to someone, you know, I'm here. And as as I think a number of people have experienced uh, with his tendency to do that, to be so generous and giving. And so we we started talking after that uh, and, and that kind of inspired me to lean into my experience, um, not just in therapy, but in talking about it more and in writing about it more. I always like to write down whatever's rolling around in my head, whether it's good or bad. And, uh, and, and so I just started writing things about, you know, as I was uncovering this trauma, how it made me feel and what I remembered and and then somehow ended up writing a whole book about it. And, uh, and here we are. So if not for saying yes to that story, um, but particularly if not for um, Jared Grice, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you and I don't think I would ever talk about this. And I think the cost of that would eventually have been enormous for me personally. So very, very grateful for Jared. That's just amazing. Like I've got tears in my eyes um, and I've got goosebumps and I remember opening the book when I first got it and saw that it was dedicated to Jared. And I sent him a photo and he said, he goes, I cried. I was like, I'm crying now. <laughs> and it's a very emotional thing, I think, because we, when we connect like this as victim survivors together or however you identify, it's a very vulnerable thing. It's a very personal thing. And instantly when you've got that in that kinship with kind of somebody when somebody's got that same experience or similar experience as you, you just connect so deeply. 
And to have somebody be so impacted by your truth-telling and your story and you putting yourself in that vulnerable state that they can then make something from it is just an incredible thing. And I feel like as I was reading the first chapter of this book, it seems to be a bit of a theme that you know, there there is this lack of access to services or this hesitance to services for men. Um, and a lot of the information is geared towards women and and I, with with good cause, you know, there, there is such a huge reliance and need for that. But I do understand that tendency to kind of go, we are talking about sexual assault, we're going to refer to it as women. And it's a thing that I'm trying to make sure that we highlight specifically men's stories in this. Do you feel like because Jared was the guy you could relate to him in that level and that as well was a reason that assisted you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, if it was a a female survivor that I was interviewing, I would have felt just as passionate about the story. I would have, I would have, you know, probably cared just as much, but I don't think it would have cut through to my, you know, to my being quite as much. Um, And I know that, you know, having written about just mental health generally, particularly men's mental health, that tends to be how it goes. The majority of men respond the best to peer-led support or support provided by other men. They they kind of heal by example. Um, and I like that's that's not great, um, but that's just kind of the way it is. And and I think I'm I'm cut from that same cloth. I think you know, the conversations that I've had with men while writing this book, but then in the last five weeks, having been inundated with messages, shows really clearly the powerful of uh, the power of men sharing their stories to empower other men to not necessarily write a book or, you know, proclaim to the world their trauma, but just to feel seen and heard. Um and yeah, it's I'm living proof of that. And I've heard from so many men that have never told anybody in their lives what happened to them as boys, but have heard about my book somehow, have discreetly downloaded it on a Kindle or an audiobook because they don't want to go into a shop and get it or they don't want to be seen holding it, um, and have read it and have reached out to me. And I'm the first person they're telling about this thing that they've been carrying around for decades on their own, dealing with on their own, often in really unhealthy ways. So I think, yeah, men, men helping men is, is how things get done. And that's across the board too. Absolutely. That's the access to mental health services. That's a destigmatization and it's having the conversation and bringing men into the conversation rather than expecting them to engage with it. And obviously there are patriarchal connotations there. There are issues there. We don't need to go into them. I think it stands on its own two feet. But to say the current issues that we have now for men not disclosing crimes, men not seeking help for them, men not sharing them with their friends, um, a lot of media being geared specifically towards women who experience this. And I think when we lump men into this as well, we need to lump other people into it as well, other cohorts who aren't tending to come forwards about this as well. Um, but I think it's a great thing that you've done. And it just goes to show that even post Me Too, that content like this can be created, that that pieces of work like this can be done and still have such a huge impact because we still have such a prevalent shame and stigma around anything to do with sexual kind of abuse um, in society. 
Absolutely. And shame, I, I think shame is one of the most potent emotions that we can feel as, as humans. And when shame lives unchallenged within us, it's so destructive. And, and you see that in, in men, no matter what they're dealing with. You know, men are significantly less likely to seek help for mental health issues. They're three times more likely to take their own lives. Um, the worst kind of stories that I used to write about male suicide were the ones where I would speak to mothers or wives or whoever around these men, and there were no signs, there were no warnings. They were just baffled by this sudden, you know, atrocious loss um, that tore them apart. And I think there's a real problem there. I think, you know, there's there's something about shame that, just men men shut down and they don't do anything about it. But the costs of that are huge. It's not just themselves that, that you know, they're living in torment alone and no one else is affected. You know, there are so many links to, to broader societal consequences, whether it's drugs and alcohol or crime or, you know, difficulty keeping down a job. Um, there's, there's a pretty clear link between unresolved trauma and unresolved mental health issues and domestic and family violence, which is a hugely pressing issue to address. Um, so I think men men not getting support for whatever reason, uh, you know, we all have to live with that. And so that's that's part of the reason I wanted to write this book because I know how easy it is. You know, I'm one of the most well-adjusted, emotionally connected men that you're likely to find, and I didn't want to let this out. I didn't feel safe and supported enough to speak about this. It took me, God, almost 30 years to open this can of worms, you know. So there's a lot of people out there suffering in silence. Absolutely. And I think the 30 years is a key number because after the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Child Sexual Abuse, we did see that kind of 25 to 35 year figure as the standard for reporting or the standard for disclosing. And I think that's a really um, significant thing to touch on as well, because it's, you know, you're a part of the um, more so the norm, I guess, of anybody who does come forward, coming forward at this point in your life. And I think it's when you've got life changes happening, you've potentially got um, family changes and family dynamics happening, you're settling into a less party kind of lifestyle maybe, there's different things, you know, you're, you've got a set in stone career, you're not at uni anymore. Like there's a lot about that time that says that. Um, and I, I just, I don't know, I think, what do you, do you think that the stars, kind of, I don't know, I'm not a big believer in fate, and I'm not a big believer in things like that, but it feels like not only was Jared the right person, but it was like it was the right time for you in your life to have this disclosure at this time. Completely. And and I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, when you're young and carefree, you can kind of get away with not addressing shit for a really long time. Like my 20s, my, I, I survived because I was silly and young and, you know, I just pushed on. I think it's why you can go to work after a massive night out on a Tuesday and still do a full, relatively productive day at work. Like, you you know, you're young and, and that's what you're built to do. And then I think as time goes on, you the cracks appear and they're really they're really hard to mask. And, and that's certainly for a number of issues. That's how it was for me. I sort of, I reached my late twenties, my early thirties. Uh, and, and I couldn't kind of 
couldn't keep it all in. Uh, and so started seeing a psychiatrist and, and thought, oh, I'm fine. Like, I don't, I don't really have anything to resolve, but, you know, let's, let's tick the box and maybe I'll feel a bit happier. Uh, and it was just from the very first session, this kind of tidal wave of realization of, of, you know, why I am the way I am. And, and that's what inspired the, the book topic, uh, the book title. Um, so it was that combined with, as you said, you know, growing up, uh, falling in love properly, getting married, thinking about starting a family, having having a job or I guess a level of a career where if I kept if I kept fucking it up because I wasn't addressing these things, like the leniency was gonna run out. So it was this perfect storm of factors and then beautiful, kind Jared coming along that everything just clicked into place. You know, I'm 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 maybe not a huge believer in fate, but I think it was it was meant to happen and it was it was meant to be. And it was just perfect, perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just so incredibly powerful as well. And I think just reflecting on his experience in his episode, especially the same with Brayden as well, like this is one person who has addressed their own issues in a certain way and decided that they wanted to speak out publicly and look at the ripple effects that that has had. And for yourself, you know, from that, you've created this and how many people are engaging with it and having their own ripple effects from that. And I feel like this is just such an important discussion topic on the fact that lived experience and sharing lived experience is so profoundly important and not sensationalizing stories as well. Like if you go to a current affair and somebody's got the dramatic music behind it and they've asked you to retake something because they want you to cry instead of speaking normally, that's not going to engage with the general public. Like that's not going to engage with the general cohort of people who've been through this. And the more ways that we tell these stories and the more cohorts of people that we capture in them and the more, you know, different dynamics that we add to that, the more people that are out there that feel so fucking alone or don't realize that they've got unresolved issues to address, that they'll be captured up into that. And maybe they might listen to this or read your book or, you know, hear anything that Jared or anyone else has done through their them sharing their stories and go, you know what, I don't have to feel shame around this anymore. I can address this. And whatever that means to them, they can start to do that. Like that's just so powerful. Hugely. And I've always believed in the power of storytelling. You know, I don't, I don't really have any other skills. <laughs> and so I, all I can do, <laughs> all I can do is tell, well, what it, it was other people's stories. And then as of late, a little bit of mine too. And I've seen, you know, day in, day out for, for all of my adult life, what that can achieve, you know, in, in a really positive way. And you're right. You know, there's a way of, there's a way of telling these stories that is clickbaity and sensationalist, but I think authenticity is is the new black. You know, people people know truth and and raw honesty, and I think they resonate um, more strongly with it. And it and it leads to something more meaningful. You might watch that sort of a current affair style story and think, oh, how sad, or oh, how awful. But then you kind of it's on TV and it's been recreated. You don't want to think about it because it's so awful, and you move on. Real people, you know in their in their voice in their honesty is so much harder to ignore and and that's i think you know we still there's so much stigma that makes this issue um unresolved and and while we 
look away from something because it's awful. Nothing changes. So you're right. I think, you know, the more people that have support and space to tell their stories, the better. So if somebody was to to get your book so they can buy it in hard copy, they can get it on Audible, um, you can buy it online, we can link all of those things. What would um what would you tell somebody or how would you explain it for somebody? What would it be like as a journey as they read through the book? It's literally a journey. It's it's sort of me in real time kind of unpacking this thing from, you know, from what happened when I was five and and the the background of my story is that uh, I was five and an older boy who was a friend uh, started molesting me. Um, it was at times very sort of forceful and manipulative, uh, threatening. Um, there was sort of, you know, some reward element in there as well. I instantly knew that it was wrong and I instantly felt a, a huge amount of shame that just, you know, snowballed from there and, you know, no no kid at six should, should hate themselves. Um, and so that's kind of the background of my story, and it continued on and off for several years. Um, and then I kind of put it away, uh, thought that it I, I was done with it, it didn't impact me, and carried on with life. And then, then the book sort of picks up with me in my late 20s, being in therapy, talking about this thing for the first meaningful time, um, mostly because I'd kind of run out of things to say, and I was you know, this guy was charging 380 bucks an hour. And I thought I need to, you know, I've got to get some material here. So I just tapped into this little awful dark well way in the recess of my soul. And, uh, and, and he made this comment like, you know, Oh, this so much of this makes sense. Like, you know, the, the things that we've been talking about your flaws, as you call them, this is, this is really common for someone who's been abused. And it was the first time that, I'd thought about it in those terms. I thought I was partly to blame. I thought, you know, he was a a messed up kid and therefore I was a messed up kid. I thought maybe I asked for it. I thought because I'm, I'm a gay man now that maybe like it somehow that, that was a part of it too. And so it really kicked off this kind of long journey of, of self-discovery, uh, but of course I suddenly had a million questions and, and very few answers uh, and so the book is me going off in search of these answers. Um, and that starts with meeting other men, talking to other men who experience things similar to me, considerably worse than me at different points in their life, uh, in, in different sort of periods of time, uh, and learning from them, you know, some of the answers to the questions and then even more questions. Uh, and then also going off and talking to experts, uh, researchers in the field, uh, those at the sort of forefront of, of treatment uh, and clinical care, um, lawyers, sort of everybody to try and address, uh, you know, what what happens to me and and why am I the way I am and and is this kind of is this a life sentence like it sort of seems to be made out to be in in whatever press you know does eventuate from from these cases uh, and then just try to sort of I don't know see if I could find healing or peace or even just a sense of whether that was possible because again you read whatever stories come out or whatever you know whatever overly draining film comes out I'm left with the impression that like you're on your own there's no fix for this it's it's always going to be horrible uh and and again that's sort of that's the title of the book um but really I wanted to figure out how to how to heal 
how to heal and and learning from other like we've said learning from other people is the best part so i spoke to about a dozen men um some didn't want to be in in the book in any way which was totally fine um some just wanted to provide sort of context or you know lessons that they'd learnt um and, and that was hugely helpful but in the end there's five five men in the book who um graciously share their stories um not necessarily about what happened to them when they were kids but what happened after um for for the years that followed and how they the challenges that they faced but also how they overcame them um so that's kind of the book in a nutshell and it's so amazing as well when you put it into that kind of context on that journey for yourself because there's so many aspects to that right like there's the legal side, the mental health side, there's the understanding. But one thing that did stand out to me and what you just said as well was that feeling like, oh, and that realisation that this was abuse. And it's something that like I have a really big chat a lot of the time with a lot of people about because people who have not gone through this type of abuse or have never been in a situation like this, whether it be one-off, whether it be ongoing, don't understand how it isn't black and white all of the time. And I guess I have been made aware <laughs> from a, somebody sent me an email the other day and I thought it was it was really actually quite insightful. And they kind of basically said to me, like, you know, you said and have said a few times things along the lines of, oh, you know, I felt this way or other people have said what you've said, you know, I felt I was to blame. What's, can we deep dive that a little bit? So I wonder if you might be able to talk about you were obviously aware something happened were you aware that that was like, you knew, said that you knew it was wrong, but I guess I'm just trying to build that picture about that difference between acknowledging something and understanding something, maybe? Is that the right language to use to describe yeah. that question? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, I, I think that's why it's so, it's so pervasive because, you know, at five and six and seven you should be worrying about, you know, well, for my era, when the next episode of The Simpsons is coming, and yes, uh, you right. know, who stole my my truck? Um, I say truck. It was it was one of those dolls that you can do its hair. Um, <laughs> you know, not not to suddenly be pondering like, am I evil? Am I a degenerate? Um, I don't understand the kind of mechanics sexually of this, but. I instantly know that it's wrong and that I can't tell anybody. Um, that's, that's you know, that's a lot to grapple with. And it really consumed most of my thoughts all day, every day for, for the remainder of my childhood and, and a bit of my adolescence. Um, I th- what's really interesting is that it, it kind of isn't black and white in, in, the, in the childhood context. Or it's very black and white. They have sort of age cutoffs for criminality. They have ages, uh, you know, from which they prosecute. Uh, they look at things in a very, uh, in a very clinical way, from a from a clinical in the you know hospital biograde sense. In a yeah. clinic clinical perspective, in a in a therapy perspective, it is extremely grey. Um, and there's there's an expert that I reference in the book, and, and I did a TV show with a few weeks ago. Michael Salter, the criminologist who's devoted his entire research career to um, to abuse, child sexual abuse, and and sort of sexual violence. Uh, and he put it to me in a really great way, where he said, you know, kids kids experimenting is 
not uncommon. In fact, it's extremely common, at, you know, like playing doctors and nurses and you've got a willy, I've got a whatever. And, and that's like kids do that and they don't then feel consumed by shame and guilt and terror. You know, they don't, they just, they don't feel anything because it's normal. It's normal childhood stuff. He's, and he said to me, when you feel that it's shameful or that it's wrong or that you can't tell anybody, that something has gone wrong and and the child should tell somebody because it's a different dynamic. It's either a different power dynamic or there's been a threat or you know, something like that. It's not age appropriate. Uh, and and so that that was a big that was a really positive thing for me in in uh, in writing this book was kind of forgiving myself a little bit and also feeling empowered that yes, not only was what happened to me not right, but you know, it shouldn't have happened. It wasn't my fault. I didn't ask for it. I didn't didn't willingly go into some encounter and it spiraled. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. So it's a real tricky one, and it's it's the the sort of the the child on child uh, element is something that's not spoken about a great deal, even in the field. There are people at the forefront of of this issue, uh, either in research or treatment, who they they said to me writing this book, like we don't know. No one knows what to do. We didn't even speak about this until, you know, maybe a decade ago at best. And and how do we treat it? Like, you know, no one wants to make a child a perpetrator, but do we have to? Like, what's what's the right approach? And so it's really, really tricky, but it is extremely common, so common. Uh, I think the figure is like, you know, one third of child sex abuse instances, they believe, experts believe, are perpetrated by other children. Wow. That's a really incredible statistic. And it's a really insightful way to have that described to you, especially through the eyes of a child, because you're so innocent and naive as well in a, not in a denigrating way, but you aren't aware of the context around you and things like that. So if you're, you know, very young and very innocent, um, body and mind is feeling that shame around it and is feeling this impact from it that's just a great indicator like yeah. that's i think a wonderful way to wonderful way to frame that for people who are thinking about their own experiences and just to hear your journey and to kind of get the connotation and the background of that that you know you've gone from this thought or belief or these intrusive thoughts and these horrible you know thoughts about yourself and having blame there to then flipping it around and going, oh, wow. And that's not because somebody's manipulated you or anything like that. It's because you've dedicated the time to actually look into this deeper and and work on yourself, which again goes back to, I think, that mental health aspect too, where I hope the people who feel this shame and who feel this, you know, lack of understanding about what they went through might hear your story or somebody else's and decide maybe I can see the benefit for me seeking help because maybe at least it will help me understand what happened in a different way so that I don't blame myself. Like it might not lead you to that healing aspect, but it might just give you one bit that you need to feel a little bit better. Yeah. And, and that was, I, I think even if I'd left it there, you know, if I'd left it in that therapy session uh, or the several that followed uh, that, that might have been good, you know. That that might have been fine. It's I think it's a really individual thing. Healing, you know, what is healing for for you? What's healing for me is is a very personal thing. Um, 
you know, I went further and I'm so glad I did. Um, but perhaps if I didn't, that big step, that that was that was significant enough, you know, on its own in isolation. So you're absolutely right. You know, I, again, you know, don't need to write a book. You don't need to go on TV. Um, it could be could be reading a book, not necessarily mine. There are heaps out there. It could be looking at, you know, something on the internet, joining a, a forum or a support group to to learn more about yourself and put things in that context to to stop blaming yourself and stop, you know, yeah, you're not the villain. You're not the And it's just something I feel that's so common. And again, like I don't know what most other people have gone through different lives and I personally have not been somebody who is religious or believes in that. And every time somebody said healing to me, I was just like, oh, you know, (laughs) not in a bad way. I mean, just for me, it was something that just didn't resonate. It sounded like, you know, people sage their house, for example, or crystals. It's just never been something that I personally believed in. I'm a scientist. So I was just like, you hear healing. I was just like, you know, I think inflammation you know, <laughs> yes. and I think that was a really wonderful dynamic for me to understand more as well with what people were meaning by that. Like healing isn't, I think, and like you said, it's individually, like it's individual, sorry, to everybody who experiences it. But I think it's also like it's not getting to a point where you don't think about it anymore and it's not getting to a point where you've erased it from your memory or it's not getting to a point where you've hypnotized yourself to I don't know quack like a duck instead of crying like there's no it's not that you know and I think to reframe it into the sense of you can break these things down into multiple problems or issues and processes and it's still going to be there it's just not going to impact you as much as it possibly has up until this time and that's the thing I think totally And that's that's one of the things I learned from the men. That's one of the things I learned from speaking to experts. But mostly, it's one of the things I learned from myself through this process. Was you know, there's there's not a pill I can take, and and it erases everything that happened from five till you know eleven or whatever, and then the decades after of sort of harm and destruction. Um, but what healing is for me is is you know talking about it makes it a little less heavy sharing the sharing the load so to speak but also just really practical coping mechanisms via therapy that you know like it's it doesn't go away it it gets a little bit easier you know nine days out of ten or eight days out of ten uh and for those two you you've got some strategies to to get through but then you still have a really terrible day or a really tough week um and that's totally fine and i think for me healing was also forgiving myself for having those really shit days you know and 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 kind of realizing finally uh pushing 40 that perfection doesn't exist and I'm allowed to I'm allowed to fall down sometimes so yeah it's not just personal but it's also um you know it's again it's not black and white it's not a prescription from a doctor and you get it and take the pill and it's one size fits all uh it's um yeah A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's a process. Yeah, absolutely. And you can go on any down any road and we'll definitely talk about some of those as well. Um, but I guess like since releasing it, you've done a number of interviews. Um, you've had a lot of people reach out to you. You've had a lot of people asking very personal questions about something that not too long ago was was very private. Um, how has that been for you navigating? all of that? Because I can imagine that's quite a lot, not only to deal with your own side of things, but the the trauma sometimes or the vicarious trauma of other people telling you theirs. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes, it's been, <laughs> it's one of those things where like, uh, you know, launching a book is, is an extraordinary privilege. Uh, and, and so it's, it, that first day is so exciting and there's, you know, a party and there's Press and everyone says lovely things to you and and then sort of reality sets in and and I think why have I done this I've you know I've I've bitten off way more than I can chew not for the first time in my life um maybe I rushed into this a little uh and there's been a couple of days like that and I'm not going to lie there there were a few days where I you know cried like I I don't I really can't recall ever crying like before, um, not too many times in my life anyway. Uh, and some days where I felt like this was a, this was a mistake. Um, but overwhelmingly, the the days where I feel really positive about this far outweigh that. And it's early days, so it was probably normal to to struggle a little bit or, or to have some some false starts. Um, I think just the response in general makes me so happy um, because this is a really ugly thing to confront. Um, it's it's just what, like it's one of the worst things that exists in society, I think. And so if you don't have a lived experience of it, 
to, to sit with that and to ponder it for too long is really unsettling and uncomfortable. Um, but to, to see so many people reading it and responding to it and talking about it, whether it's with their friends or at work or at book club or on social media, they're, you know, they're amplifying this thing that otherwise, otherwise would have gone unsaid in their context. Um, so that's been really positive. The feedback from, from men and, and a couple of women as well um, has been extraordinary. Um, it happened a lot quicker than I kind of thought. I'm like, wow, these people read really quickly. I had my first message like on, on the 2nd of February, the day after it came out um, from a guy in, in regional Australia who I just had seen some, I don't know, press somewhere, got it on his Kindle automatically and read it in a single sitting. Um, wow. I feel so much privileged to, to not just get those messages, but to be trusted, I suppose, or, or, or to have people confide in me. Um, it, it is, it is tough. Um, I don't want to sort of dissuade anyone from, from reaching out to me or, or to anyone really. Um, but there are, there have been days where, you know, I'll get a particular email or, or Instagram message or whatever, and, and sort of have to have to leave it for a little while before I finish reading it or, or respond. Um, I think that's that's normal and to be expected. You would know all about that. Um, this is all new for me. Um, but again, I just feel, you know, I'm I'm just being a, a Jared for a while, and uh, and that's okay. I'm I'm really happy to be that. It's not going to be all puppies and and roses, but that's okay. Um, it ha- talking about myself has been really tricky. Um, I, I sort of, I think it like just time went so quickly and I was so busy that I hadn't really practiced <laughs> what I was going to say or how I was going to say it. And so I did my first interview and <laughs> just, oh, I just vomited words at this poor reporter. Uh, she's oh, extraordinary. No. Thank God. She's one of the best feature writers in the country, but I just spoke like again, I like it was meant to be a half hour thing, and it was almost three hours, and um, I just rambled and rambled, much like I'm doing now. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's been, and there are parts of it that are uncomfortable, even if I've just written eighty thousand words of it and then read it out loud for an audiobook, and not to mention the you know five rounds of edits over nine months with my publisher. Um, it's still raw, and it's still it still cuts from time to time. Um, but yeah, I think the older I get, the more uh, comfortable I am with being uncomfortable. Um, I think, and, and, you know, sometimes really positive things aren't easy to do. So yeah, I, I mean, it's, we're only five and a bit weeks in to ask me, <laughs> ask me in December. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I feel like as a journalist as well, your expertise is in sharing other stories. So it would be such a different um, experience for you to have questions aimed at yourself when you're speaking about that. Like you're used to sharing somebody else's story and your understanding or interpretation of that. So it is a very different Totally. And I've got, I have a, a lot of experience in not just writing about the worst of humanity, but seeing it up close, you know, like my first my first big story three or four weeks into my career was a, you know, a horrific uh, fatality, multiple fatality news story. And, uh, you know, I still have 
nightmares from that from time to time about that. But um, I've done this day in day out for for years, like the worst of the worst, and thought I had a really thick skin and and that not much bothered me. Um, yeah, it turns out that's not quite true, but that's okay. <laughs> so a reminder that I'm so human. Think- yeah, and it's the importance, I think, of these other, like, survivor communities and networks because I think those people like Jared or other people, like, that have shared their story or have that commonality with you, maybe not as a journalist but as people who have, as you said, the experience with receiving lots of messages and things like that. And I'm the same. There are days where I just don't read them. And I know that I think that people who are sending you a lot of that information understand that you're not a service provider and, you know, I have to read them when I can actually read them and yeah. that's okay. Um, but I think that's the importance as well of these communities and networks that are starting, the Survivor Support Network, the Survivor Hub. There's so many other different um, just peer-led networks. And when you can message somebody and, you know, or send a message over to Jared or Harry or one of the guys and and just say, like, you know, I'm feeling a little bit stressed at the moment, I've got a little bit of overwhelm happening. But then on top of that, I feel like with what you're doing, it's like such burnout from being like interviewed all the time. Go here, go there, answer questions, do this, do that. Like I feel like there's a burnout aspect to that as well where you're just absolutely exhausted. Well, it's yeah, it has been really busy. Uh, and and the first time around for my first book, I kind of I didn't do any of this because it came out uh, April 2020, like the first week. Wow. Of the whole national lockdown and and it was a serious one. Like you couldn't <laughs> couldn't leave your house sort of thing. Uh and so I didn't do a tour. I didn't I didn't do appearances. I didn't, you know, talk every day about the book and read passages from it. Um and it was it was a, a good five or six weeks in before I did my first piece of media because everyone was distracted with COVID. Um so there's just the kind of the human logistics of being being really busy um it's been amazing and and i love it and i love doing i yeah i just feel i feel honored to to have a have a story and to be able to talk about it um but it's been yeah it's been i'm a i'm a dad as well and i have a full-time job so it's been there's been a lot to juggle um thank god for thank god for the village that is around me yeah, absolutely. And you are doing such a, a wonderful job and it's so incredible to know you. And I think it's also worth really highlighting, I guess, towards the end of our discussion, what the book kind of is about. It's not just these horrible stories and it's not just you trying to find this, but it's got that ending of, um, I'm not you know, spoiling anything here. It's got that kind <laughs> of, um, you know, that, that there is hope after abuse and there are services and, you know, while these things that people experience are horrible, they do, they do not have to define the rest of your life. Do you mind talking a little bit about um, that kind of aspect to the book and, and what you found as you went through this process? Oh, gladly, because it's, you know, doing, doing a lot of media, a lot of the most sort of short five-minute radio interviews or something, and it's it's overlooked because you know it's it's really easy to be distracted by the horrors of this. Um, but I I really wanted a book that you know didn't just talk about why I am the way I am, but also how I'm increasingly something else. Um, uh, and and that's by leaning into to therapy. It's by talking about it with other people. It's by 
being honest and and also just communicating you know really basic stuff like if i'm having a shit day telling my husband or you know a colleague at work or my boss like hey i'm not i'm not having the greatest day today um so the book is you know it ends on a really hopeful note by sharing the reality of of these men and of me that you know we've all we've all come from very different backgrounds this thing happened to us we kind of ended up in a very similar place speaking a very similar language in terms of the cost the the sort of human cost of of this abuse um but then also and more importantly we've we've all landed in really good places and continue to to heal and grow by seeking seeking help and support um you know we've got loving friends and family or spouses um some of us have kids uh great jobs uh full and happy lives still those those bad days or those tough weeks because that's human that's normal but we've we've found coping mechanisms we've found community we've found our voices and and taken back our agency as well i think importantly um and we're better for it uh and so you know if nothing else i hope that for anyone who's struggling with anything and thinks that they they can't get help or they have to go it alone or that they're fine going it alone i hope that there's there's a lesson in you know the the importance of asking for help it's it's a tough thing sometimes but but it's so worth it and in fact the only the only dark parts of the book um in terms of of men and and journeys that didn't end well are men who suffered in silence and 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 some took their own lives and no one ever knew and i think that's that's you know there's there's a cost of carrying this enormous thing on your own for the entirety of your life um because you feel shame or, or fear about about reaching out to someone to anyone um doesn't have to be a therapist it could be a mate it could be someone at a support group could be at a meet up uh could be you know reading more to understand about yourself um locking this thing away and pretending it isn't there doesn't work um these things fester in the dark uh and so shining any kind of light on it i think is really important and really powerful um not just for ourselves but for others too Yeah and you said that um you know that really important word there shame and that's something that controls so many things in our society and in our lives and you know it is so difficult to 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 do things when you feel shame when you feel shame as if you were responsible when you feel shame um as if it's got an you know whatever that may might be if there's an underlying feeling there of shame for you you know as we said before we started recording it's just such a strong feeling and a strong driver and i feel like the more we talk about these things and the more we unearth what it's really not shameful the fact that somebody chose to victimize you it's not shameful that you were the victim or victimized by somebody you know it's not shameful that you're having a difficult time and the more we talk about it it's great but i think the other thing as well is that you know often people have said to me things along the lines of i'm okay right now though and it's that kind of community concept i think that we have that you only seek therapy when you're really bad and the difficulty i guess with that is is that services are so overwhelmed at the moment it can take 2 months to get in to see a therapist so 
if you are waiting until you can't cope, you know, there's a strain on the system that means you won't be supported for the time that you, you potentially need it the most. Yeah. And this is such a, like a flippant metaphor, um, but like, uh, you know, years ago for several months on and off, I'd have this like really horrific tooth pain and then it would kind of go away the next day and I wouldn't think about it. And then like suddenly it had come back, you know, eating or in the middle of a meeting or in the middle of the night or whatever. And it took me the better part of a year to finally, you know, it, it, the pain didn't go away anymore. And I went to the dentist and I had to have an emergency root canal and it was horrifying. Maybe if I'd gone nine months earlier, that wouldn't have happened, you know, or maybe if I'd just been better at general tooth health, <laughs> I wouldn't have had the pain in the first place. So yeah, I mean, that's such a, that's such a, such a flippant metaphor, but, but it's kind of apt, you know, like if you wait until the car breaks down on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, you're stuck. So it's, you know, take it for a service. There's another terrible metaphor for you, but it's true. Like, you know, I, I think the best, my best days in therapy are when I feel fine because you can sort of see the, see the forest for the trees. And when I'm, when I'm at my absolute worst and most distraught, you're sort of just stuck and, you know, how can you even begin to explore that and to, to address that? So, um, and you're right, it takes a million years to get in to see someone at the moment. So pro- being proactive is great. But I think shame is is a symptom of, of health uh, and so it shouldn't be ignored, um, kind of like a sore tooth. Yeah, I think it's a perfect analogy. I think it was really good because it just it does make sense. I think you're painting that picture in somebody's mind of something that is so true. You don't want the car to break down. You don't want to have to end up in surgery, you know, and I think, you know, early access and early intervention is wonderful. And seeing a therapist or going and seeking support or making sure that you've got better things in place for yourself mentally, physically, et cetera, are always going to be beneficial anyway. And yeah. You know, I think one of the best times, yeah, as you said, to go to therapy or anything like that is when you're feeling good. And it's often on those days we're like, maybe I'll call and cancel because I feel fine. And it's just like, no, I'll go because I've been on this waiting list for six months or something like yeah. that. <laughs> and it is every time. But I always find it interesting on those days um, where the things that come up during that time when you're feeling fine are very interesting sometimes completely completely like whether it's a reflection on i don't know the last time you felt scared or you know um slighted or overlooked or whatever (laughs) we're getting into my sort of key personality flaws now um yeah i think it's 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 totally worth going um i even had a psych once who you know i said like i don't i don't know what to say like I've, i've had a really good couple of months and uh, I don't. I don't think there's anything that I need to go over. I've addressed a lot of stuff, and he's like, "Okay, great. Well, let's let's just spend the next forty five minutes doing like mindfulness tricks, like little tactics for when you feel stress, how to bring yourself back, how to you know identify particular emotions and categorize them, and and help them lose a bit of their sting. Um, so yeah, make the most of of that session and and your money and your Medicare, whatever rebate and. Uh, and make it work for you. Yeah. And I also feel like because usually when you've got, when you're not okay, there's something specifically wrong. Like, and it could be something like a breakup, like something immediate has happened and you're in a state of 
disaster about it. So if you're feeling like something like child sexual abuse that's in your background isn't the pressing issue right now, going when you're feeling okay is the time where you can kind of, hey, I was just thinking about this thing, (laughs) just casually raising it with your therapist Um, or whatever (laughs) platform that might be. You know, I think it is that kind of thing where it's just like, yeah, I love that. They're not just there as a crisis service, I guess, is my point as well. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, at in childhood during abuse, um, you know, the research shows overwhelmingly that early intervention is extremely effective. Um, whether it's later in life, it's, you know, again, the research shows that the earlier you start to address the things that happened to you as a child, the easier it is to, to deal with them and find strategies that work for you. Um, yeah. And, and like the title alludes to, like we've spoken about, um, there are things that can seem unrelated to what happened to you as a child that are a product of them. And if you can kind of figure out how to, you know, manage those when they crop up, then, you know, everyone wins. Two birds, one stone. Yeah. It kind of just made me think about healing as evolving and as a, you know, in a, in a different light, it is being able to evolve past something or being able to adapt to something and giving yourself those toolkits to be able to deal with that, which I think is a really cool um, way to kind of look at it. It's not just mending the broken wounds and healing in that sense as well. It is It is evolving into the new person that you are and giving yourself the opportunity to not be held back by something, but giving yourself the opportunity to move forward from it and continue to move past it in different ways. Yeah. And that's, that's the human condition. I think we're meant to, we're meant to learn and, and grow and change. Um, And that's, that can be, that can be a good thing and a positive thing, not just for us, but for those, those around us who, you have to deal with this on our bad days. <laughs> yeah, and but like I just love as well what what this is going to mean for younger people in society, and especially younger boys in society, where they see people openly talking and discussing mental health, the impacts of child sexual abuse, or things that consent that are being taught as education. Much more well rounded are these children going to be, and how much less disabling is this going to be on their lives in the future when we when we really show and act and live the values of removing the shame and stigma. Absolutely. It's, again, the power of storytelling. It is. It makes me, it gives me goosebumps. It's given me, um, and reading a book as well. I mean, it was, it's also just a testament to yourself and your writing style to be able to generate an absolute page turner because you're like, this is interesting, and then you're infuriated, and then I'm like, is that true? And then, like, it's a, it's a bit <laughs> of a roller coaster, but it's an absolute page turner as well, and it's just, it's wonderful to read something that's written in a very thoughtful but very engaging way. You don't get sick of anything. The chapters aren't too long, um, which can be really difficult, I feel, when you're reading some books. If you've got a chapter that goes for 200 pages or something, um, there's no end in sight kind of thing, but you've just broken it up in a way that's really digestible and really, um, yeah, I don't know how to say page turner in another way, but it's really it's, it's- enthralling. I, I made of mine called me right after she'd read it early, very early on, and she said, "Oh my god, it's such like, it's such an enjoyable read." And then she sort of caught herself, and she's like, oh, "I'm sorry, I don't read enjoyable. I just she's like, I don't know what I mean." And and I was like, "No, it's perfect. That's exactly what I'd hoped for." You know, it's 
it's a really heavy topic. It's a really difficult topic to engage with. It's just like it's just a difficult book to pick up in general. Like you're not at the airport on your way to Hamilton Island, maybe thinking, yeah, this is absolutely what I want to spend a week on the beach with. Um, so to have, I wanted to make it accessible for for anyone, no matter their experience, and and to kind of yeah, write it in. A, it's a nonfiction, and and there's you know research in there, and there's there's sort of legal precedent in there, and whatever else. Um, but it is at its heart a story, and I wanted to write it like a sort of a narrative, uh, you know, a narrative experience that that is engaging. So I'm so happy that you that you found it that way. Yeah, and I think that's so wonderful as a selling point as well, because yeah, you hear the experiences of trauma and child sexual abuse and the things that they have, and you go, oh my gosh, it's such a difficult topic, and especially for somebody who's never engaged with this topic before doesn't have lived experience you know but I think to hear about it being your journey and your story it just reads as such a different kind of thing it is difficult to read at times but it's not something that is focusing on gore and horror and sensationalizing crimes against people it's really breaking down the impacts of it and I think that that's a major thing that you know I really hope most of the men in my life would at least read this as well because it just got me thinking as well I know a lot of guys, especially when I started sharing my personal experience, that started to share this with me, and I'm the only person that they've ever told. And I'm not their best friend. Their best friend's a guy down the road, and he's also maybe shared something with me as well. I'm never going to disclose that. I'm never going to tell anybody that. But it just got me thinking, I wonder, what if this book could make the difference in the sense that that groups of guys that are mates that are down the pub together feel safe enough to share this with their friends or feel safe enough to bring it up with their friends or feel safe enough to ask for help from their mates in a day-to-day conversation and and how much of an impact that would have, especially even on their relationships and friendships, like as a closeness yeah. thing too. I hope so. I really, really hope so um, because it is it is really difficult to to say those words. I lived that. Um, but likewise, I've had I've had a couple of mates that I've known for a long, long time that have read the book and and told me things that happened to them when they were boys, and I had no idea. And and I found that a really um, oh gosh, I could, <laughs> I could always get a little bit emotional. Um, I just found that such a profound experience in a number of ways. One that like. We we may never have spoken about that. Um, too that that they they never felt safe enough to talk about it. But also three, just how fucking common this is. Like, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do, and and I could talk for hours about you know things that I touched on in the book, but didn't go into in great detail, like justice reform, mental health care investment, uh, education at at the earliest possible age for, for kids. Um, yeah, not talking about it is is why things haven't changed. And the, the, that's the other really annoying and infuriating thing that I found writing this book is that, you know, 20 years ago to now, like the stats haven't changed. The rates of instances haven't changed. Why? Why have we not made a dent in this just horrendous thing and it's because we the cost of silence is huge it goes unchallenged and it continues 
Yeah, and we live in a system where we are silenced. And I think you're right, the volume of victims or people who have been victimised in this type of way, whatever magnitude that sits at, um, it is so not spoken about, it's so not shared with police, it is so all of those things. It's up to us, I feel, as a grassroots kind of thing to get the rubber meeting the road, get people talking about it more because there's safety in numbers. And the more people that you have, the more that we change these societal expectations, the more people that will come forward, the more outrage we'll see about people who aren't given convictions of sentences, the more, you know, and it does sadly change that. But I feel, you know, and I say this on the episodes all the time, I think I should get it printed on a T-shirt, um, is that crime is a social construct. And and I say that in that way because we drive the laws in, in our countries and in our states. and it is up to people doing that kind of work and this is the best platform for you know like a book like this to launch to start that narrative and conversation and drive the outrage the outrage that we need to happen so that things will change yeah outrage gets shit done too <laughs> gets, you know whether it's programs in schools to teach kids about what's appropriate and what to do if if something happens, who to talk to, whether it's programs for teachers and parents on how to respond appropriately if a child does say that, whether it's demanding better investment in mental health care, whether it's saying to governments, we don't need another inquiry, we've had eight and the recommendations are there in black and white, just implement them, whether it's saying to, to the justice system that it's not okay that a defence barrister can berate a victim survivor. It's not why all why is it okay that someone deserves a character reference after abusing a child and being convicted of that? Like why why is someone convicted and they don't serve any actual prison time, but their victim has this, you know, life of of punishment? Um, mm. it's when you're outraged that that you start to start to to want to do things and and so yeah the book is hopeful but hopefully it's a little bit rage inducing as well and people can can uh can come together and and say enough's enough my god yeah absolutely and I think it's just so reminiscent of the feeling I had after reading see what you made me do by Jess Hill as well which was you know there were so many analogies and anecdotes in that as well that just get you thinking in terms of comparisons like you know for example um when we're talking about prison sentences and things like that. And you can say, you know, an Aboriginal woman in the Northern Territory who hasn't paid a fine for having unregistered dogs is going to possibly receive a larger prison sentence than somebody who's been convicted of child sexual abuse in Victoria. Those are something that is rage-inducing. And when you put it into perspectives like that, people are like, what the actual fuck? But it needs to be written down and explained plainly. And also I think we need to change this narrative where people just... And I think this is, you know, getting off topic, but seeing what's happening in Tennessee right now where they're bagging, banning drag, um, and it's a horrible situation. They're banning any uh, trans-affirming care. They're, they're banning anything. And people can't see the connotations of what this actually means in, you know, the times of their life because they're not trans maybe. But it takes somebody with lived experience, you know, and I said the other day, it's not just terrifying for trans people, which it is, and that in and of itself is enough but I'm like, you know, this is getting down to the handsmaid's tale of it. It's all because there could be an argument that me wearing pants is dressing in another way. 
And it just takes a bigot. It takes somebody enacting that, you know, and I think that's another thing that we need to to consider about these impacts that we have worldwide, you know, and I, I just, it just raising it and doing it is going to do so much. And I, I'm thankful that you've written this book. I'm thankful it's written in this way. I think it's going to do a lot for this world and it already has from those people that you've reached. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for, for doing this and doing the work and and raising this and, and giving people a really great, I think guide as well that shows them that, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you. And thank you for all that you do as well. It's, you know, this is how this is how stuff gets done, whether it's giving someone a little bit of reassurance uh, to, to push on or or changing laws. Um, yeah. This is the cold face, baby. So thanks so much for, for your work and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about mine too. No, my absolute pleasure. It's been an honour. Um, we, I will be coming up to Sydney as well soon, so we're bound to have a cocktail together. Great, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We'll make um, we'll make Harry come as well. Oh, Jared's yeah, in Sydney perfect. too. Look, it's yeah. going to be a catch up. <laughs> oh, golly! <laughs> I'll alert the locals. <laughs> yeah, just let them know because um, you know, the party's coming to town. But <laughs> um, so you've got the book. You made me this way. Um, it's available online it's available in stores it's available on audible um on kindle there's a number of different ways what would be the best way for people to access it we can just share a heap of links or do you have a website specifically um it's just it's everywhere so i'm kind of i feel bad like singling out one bookshop um any like go into any local bookshop uh your favorite local independent bookshop because they're they're legends uh, they'll have it. The big, big department stores have it. You can even get it at Big W and Kmart, uh, which is very exciting for me. Uh, you can buy it, buy it on any online retailer. You can get it in ebook in in whatever format you like, and also audio book. Um, she's everywhere. So uh, yeah, grab grab it, and um, and and I hope that it it means something. And and yeah, drop me a line. I, I do feel enormous privilege hearing from readers um, who've taken the time to to buy it and read it. So yeah. Absolutely. And if people do want to connect with you about your book, um, how can they do that? Uh, so I've got like a little a little contact form on my website, which is just shannonmalloy.com. Um, but I spend 75% of my life on Instagram. So I am there uh, scrolling through interiors accounts and looking at cat memes um, at Sleemol, which is S L E M O L. Absolutely. And I'll link those both in the show notes for this episode, along with um, some different ways maybe that people can access the book as well. So not only read it um, and engage with it, I've um, also started to listen to it on audiobook because I'm a oh, very gosh. big <laughs> audio listener when I walk. So, and I go for walks a lot. So, um, it is really good, and I'm not just saying that because you're here. Um, I really mean that. It's it. It really was quite profound for me to read. So, um, thank you again, um, thank and I you. hope to see you soon. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. 
can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.